Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Wapto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Frédéric Carrière is Managing Director and Head of Investment Strategy at RBC Wealth Management. She heads up the firm's London Equity Desk and formulates equity strategy for the UK and Europe. Frédéric also co-chairs RBC Wealth Management's GPAC committee, which determines asset allocation for the firm's global client base. As of the end of last year, RBC had $843.6 billion Canadian dollars under administration, making it the fifth largest wealth manager in the world. Having spent eight years at companies like Williams de Bro, managing several European equity mandates, Frederic had previously taken him five years at BBVA Latinvest as a sell-side analyst covering Latin America. A subsequent stint with Invesco covering emerging markets and global equities preceded her current position. Frederic and I discuss what leading a global asset manager is like before we embark on a whistle-stop world tour where Frederic offers her investment outlook for the US, Europe and UK and emerging markets too. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Frederic. It's great to have you on the show. How's your week been so far? Thank you, Half, for, for having me. The week has been good. It's been busy. Lots of queries about inflation. I think very much like uh, clients really worried about COVID and we talked about COVID for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks in terms of the numbers, uh, fatalities, um, uh, vaccine rollout and the like. Mm. I think the new topic is inflation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And hopefully we can touch on that today as well. Um, And whereabouts are you based? Are you in the UK? In central London, yes. Yes, okay. Great, because I think RBC have actually got an office around the corner from CMC Markets office, uh, so near Liverpool Street, is that right? That's right. We recently moved to 100 Bishop's Gate. Yes, okay. Nice. All right. Well, uh, good, to, good to know we're fairly close. So um, I'll kick off uh, just by getting into uh, a topic that I think we'll discuss in more detail later on. And then what we'll do is we'll circle back and cover your background and what you do on a day-to-day basis. But Firstly, I think we spoke to you at the beginning of last year, or at least my team did, uh, for the latest issue of our print magazine. Uh, And it was just before the coronavirus had properly took hold. And we asked you to identify the most influential event in your career. So you answered the 2008-9 financial crisis. I don't think anyone could really argue with that. And I don't necessarily expect that to have changed. But can you sum up the impact of this pandemic? You know, what impact it's had on your career uh, and just your day-to-day role at RBC as well? So the impact on the career is really uh, the fact that many of us are now working from home. Um, but having said that, so the, the hours are a lot longer. They sort of bleed into your, your private time more easily. Um, mm. But uh, there's no impact per se on my career uh, at this stage. There has been some changes, but not due to, to coronavirus. I think the one thing I've noticed is that, uh, and we can get into that later, but I do quite a bit of broadcasting. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's now a lot more competitive to get broadcasting time. That's because networks used to count on people to come over the studio. Uh, now they have access to a much wider pool of talent. So it's become mm-hmm. a lot more competitive. Yeah, no, I completely see that. And that's exactly the sort of stuff I wanted to 
get into and just sort of make it less abstract for the listeners, I suppose, how uh, a pandemic affects someone in your position. Um, and that, that point about people having access to uh, experts from across the globe now, because obviously people are working from home and have more time to, to work uh, with broadcasters. It's a really valid one. And actually, that's something that's probably benefited the Opto Sessions podcast to a larger extent as well. One of the many reasons, I suppose, we've got time with yourself. Uh, it's also benefited me in, in a way that I can have, you know, now have access to um, networks on the other side of the world as well. So it, it goes both ways. Mm. And the, the impact on, on day-to-day, I've really noticed uh, a change in, in attitude. There's certainly a lot more empathy um, around personnel, health, economic, and social uh, impact of COVID, both with your colleagues uh, from around the world, but also with, with clients uh, whose lives also have, have changed. And you see mm. people in a new light, a new angle. Uh, there's been a feeling uh, of togetherness, which really we didn't have uh, that much before. Um, and in a way, in a way, it's been uh, slightly easier to stay close to clients uh, in, mm. in that respect amid the market volatility. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're spot on about sort of viewing your colleagues in a slightly different context, seeing them within their homes and obviously seeing them balance their, their personal uh, side of their life, their personal schedule versus their work one. Um, I, th- I think it's been at least really encouraging in that sense obviously there's plenty of negatives that, that, that go with it as well um some of which uh, we'll discuss from an investment perspective later on but let's let's um circle back and cover your your background now and just kind of get into detail on what you do on a day-to-day basis at rbc and let's start by going through some of your more recent roles chronologically so before you get to rbc i think you were at invesco for over six years managing latin american em and global funds um and that latin american focus preceded that role too, as you previously worked for BBVA Latinvest for five years in the 90s as well. Um, so you've got a wide remit. Uh, you maintain that wide remit in your current role. You have to have a, a global focus, I suppose. But how important has it been for you to build intimate knowledge of different regional markets like Latin America? Um, you know, it was a, a very good learning experience in terms of the specifics of Latin America Um Latin America is, is now a much less important market than it was in the early 1990s. Mm. But you know, in terms of financial analysis, in terms of interview skills, when you speak to management, all, all this uh, were skills that I was able to apply to other markets, be they developing markets or even mature markets. Um, and it's proven very useful. Uh, and, and so you deal with Latin America, you deal with the Mexican the peso crisis in 1994, and then all of a sudden in you know, 2018, you have a Turkish uh, lira crisis, and a lot of the uh, factors are are the same. So it it was um, the Latin American experience, perhaps not directly applicable, but some of the skills certainly very useful, uh, and these are skills that I still use today. Yeah, great. I think I think that's what it is, regardless of whether I guess Latin America, which you definitely rightly point out, has has become less important perhaps as a market and less significant. I think it's just th- those skills that you build up over time by focusing on a specific market. And I want to get into that uh, later on in your career as well. I think you worked, at, uh, at a, worked as an investment director, uh, again, managing funds at uh, a company called Williams Dubrow, amongst others. Uh, and, and as part of those roles, it seems you focus your attention on European markets as well. So you transition to focus on European markets from perhaps a Latin American focus in previous roles. So firstly, from someone that doesn't work within the fund management space, how easy is it to transition from market to market? And secondly, do any 
market-specific idiosyncrasies stand out to you? Uh, so look, at first I, I point out, it seems that I, I hopped around uh, uh, jobs around uh, uh, a lot, but all these changes were all as a result of takeovers. So I, yes, okay. I did pull my feet, we just kept on being taken over. <laughs> uh, as things uh, evolved, I think I, I, I was active in taking the, the in moving away from strictly Latin America. I, after five years, I became quite disillusioned about where the region, uh, you know, how it would grow in, in the long term, where it would, um, and I felt I needed uh, to broaden my experience. So I, I made uh, consciously within these companies the move to go from uh, Latin America to emerging markets. Uh, and then there was an, uh, an opportunity uh, to move to, to Europe. Um, and as you know, a lot of Southern European uh, companies are uh, involved, uh, heavily invested in Latin America. So mm. in a way, I could um, bring something to the European team there. Okay. Uh, uh, again, you know, it's about using your experience and making it work elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting that you're able to transfer that, that knowledge across into the new role. Um, and I, I'm not giving uh, times on, on some of these roles, but, you know, you're in, in these roles for multiple years i think the two investment directorships that i mentioned just a minute ago that you're in those roles sorry for a combination of about eight years i think so certainly not hopping around uh, but i get your point about the takeovers um mm-hmm. so then since november 2011 you've been with rbc taking the head of investment strategy role back in march 2017 i believe so firstly can you just sum up what your current role entails for us so look, my role is is at the moment basically uh, two things. One uh, of um, collating our uh, investment leaders' views uh, on markets, uh, and with some colleagues uh, forming the house view uh, with their help, um, and uh, so talking about these views, writing, publishing a lot of uh, research uh, reports. Um, uh, so I'm a spokesperson for wealth management uh, for both for clients uh, and for the outside world. Yeah, okay, yeah. And you, uh, as part of that, I suppose you co-chair RBC's uh, Wealth Management Global Asset Allocation Committee. Um, so, I mean, you've touched on it there, but can you get into detail on what the key responsibilities are as part of that side of your role? Yes, so the, the Global Asset Allocation Committee meets on a weekly basis uh, to discuss key economic and market events and, and other factors which might affect global financial markets. And those meetings are really the, the anchor of my week. They happen you know, every week at the same time and everything revolves around that. <laughs> and the committee includes senior investment leaders from around the world uh, and it leverages all the resources and all the insights of RBC as a broader organization. So that includes capital markets, our institutional asset management arm, uh, among, among other things. And again, the committee is responsible for producing frequent and regular thought leadership pieces uh, and responsible to uh, provide objective guidance uh, on a broad range on investments to our clients and to our investment advisors. Yeah, great. I can imagine those are fascinating meetings to be part of. Um, okay, well, finally, uh, before we move on to RBC's investment philosophy, um, RBC, uh, at least I read uh, yesterday, have $843.6 billion Canadian dollars under administration. So I think that uh, figure was taken at the end of 2020. So it may have even grown since then. But I think that makes uh, RBC the fifth largest wealth manager in the world. So 
whether whether that's right, it, it's safe to say it's a very large organization with a lot of assets under uh, under administration. So I'm interested in understanding what it's like to operate at such size and whether that presents any challenges from an investment perspective. You've got any thoughts on that? Uh, so people are often surprised when they hear how big RBC uh, is, <laughs> particularly uh, you know in regions where we're less known in in Europe and, and Asia. Certainly, we have a much higher profile in in North America. But look, I'll say that uh, being large, being global, it's really uh, a strength and a stability um, that are particularly valued uh, at, at the current time. And while we are very large, uh, we are a global organization, as I mentioned, and that enables us to apply a very broad expertise and very deep knowledge to the financial needs of our clients, which can be quite sophisticated. Uh, so I would stress that uh, more than uh, for any companies that I've worked in uh, before, uh, we have a really highly personalized approach uh, with our clients. We have an extremely collegiate culture of collaboration among teams worldwide. Um, and you know, to be honest, how well it works doesn't seem cease to to amaze me. <laughs> it in action uh, at the Global Asset Allocation Committee every week. Uh, with colleagues from uh, Canada, the US, Asia, and of course here in the BI, and and that's very very special. Yeah, it certainly seems it. I mean, I guess when I bring up sort of drawbacks in terms of operating at such a significant size, I'm thinking about agility. Uh, smaller firms might be able to be more agile in their asset allocation. Uh, for example, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts on that. How RBC are able to remain agile in what are quite volatile markets, particularly at the moment. So I think you mentioned we're we're over eighty thousand uh, employees. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that all these employees work on our clients' portfolios, right? We have smaller teams mm. um, and uh, you know, wealth management in terms of uh, organizing the health. You, it is um, a relatively well. It's a very agile, uh, quick-moving uh, group uh, where a lot of conversations take place at the the usual schedule time, but also ad hoc conversations. Mm. Um, we all want you know, what's best for our clients. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, agility uh, is, is very important. It's, um, it's a market where timing is, or an industry where timing is very, very important. Uh, and that is certainly taken into consideration. Yeah, okay, absolutely. All right, well, let's get into RBC's investment philosophy then. Um, just want to understand sort of any overarching principles that might govern RBC's thinking. And again, in that interview you gave us last year, you described the three key pillars of RBC's investment philosophy as fundamentals, valuation, and sentiment. Can you briefly explain why you focus on these three factors specifically? So look, the, the world financial markets, that it's, it's very complex, right? And there are so many factors to look at, so many variables, so many data points, uh, and most of them are ever-changing. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to have a, a framework on how to think about markets and investment decisions. And we found that you know, the variables that we uh, look at, that all the specialists in their different asset classes, their different regions, all these variables that they look at really fall in these three buckets. And they really help us um, see more clearly what the situation is. Uh, and by using the framework, it's also helps us explain to clients how we invest and the rationale of our investment decisions. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I guess it means that you've always got a consistent sort of set of pillars or principles that you can fall back on to uh, root all of your investment decisions in, uh, which I, I, I can imagine is extremely useful. I guess then what I'm 
what I'm thinking when you, when you tell me and explain those pillars is how do they separate you from your peers? So, uh, so this is um, so the, the key in terms of, of timing and asset allocation. In mm. terms of what differentiates um, us from others, I would say ESG. Uh, so it's not a, a differentiating factor now, but RBC has been doing this for many, many, many years, long before it was fashionable. Uh, and we're now going one step further with impact investing. So measuring the impact, the benefits that investments, portfolios, client portfolios can have, for instance, on the environment. And so this culture that leads us to look very seriously at themes such as sustainability. Uh, so sustainability through technology is a very important theme for us. Uh, we are biased towards companies which provide technological solutions to the sustainability challenges that we have today. For instance, climate change, difficult access to fresh water, growing healthcare uh, costs, and, and the like. And it also leads us to think outside the box. So, for example, for some portfolios where uh, it's appropriate for risk tolerance, um, we have purchased an EU emission allowance note to capitalize on what we expect will be an increase in carbon allowances prices. Uh, so we believe that uh, as the world uh, strives to reduce emissions at a faster and, and faster uh, pace, the price of uh, carbon allowances will go up uh, and uh, there will be more used uh, to, um, to offset carbon allowances, which inevitably will be a little bit too high. Uh, so for us, it's a, it's a benefit for portfolios in terms of the increase in carbon prices uh, but also it can act as a, a portfolio-level CO2 emissions offset. Yeah, and I guess some of those ESG trends are are long-term. I mean, the, the potential of those trends won't be realized over a, you know, a year or six months or anything like that. Some of these are multi-decade trends even. Um, and it makes me think whether there are any governing principles in terms of RBC's investment time horizon. Uh, obviously, this will differ from team to team, fund to fund, but are you a typically longer term thinking fund and company or are there any sort of governing principles you can speak to there? So I would say that when we look at performance of, of funds, uh, you know, we don't look at it on a month to month basis. Mm-hmm. Um, we would look at it more on a, on a, on a you know, minimum a year, you know, an outlook of, of a year. Uh, having said that, we do engage in tactical uh, some tactical moves where uh, we think they are um, validated. So we don't just buy and hold in terms of our investments. We can take tactical positions. But in terms, again, in terms of the performance, uh, long-term performance is really what, what speaks. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now. Back to the show. So I want to move us on to the the next section of the podcast. And it's not often that we get someone that has such a sort of global remit such as yourself. So I'd like to go on a a whistle-stop tour, I suppose, around the globe to get your investment outlook for for each key region. Um, So let's start in the US. Um, The Dow Jones, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ have been extremely volatile in the last few weeks. Uh, You had the NASDAQ, for example, which fell below it's 50-day stock market average, uh, a red flag, perhaps, uh, as far as bubbles are concerned. So do you think investors are starting to lose faith in big tech? So I don't think it's about losing faith. Uh, I think that historically, when the economy moves past the peak acceleration, 
uh, which we're in a point where we're close to, then equity returns tends, tend to, to slow. Uh, style, factor leadership becomes more ambiguous and the, the relative performance of sectors becomes a lot more dependent on bond yields. Mm-hmm. And uh, we expect rising bond yields. We expect uh, for the 10-year U.S. Treasury, um, 10-year bond, we expect 2% at the end of this year, uh, 3% at the end of uh, 2022. So we expect rising bond yields. We expect a, a steeper yield curve. And typically, those support continued outperformance of cyclicals and value. Uh, and typically, they are a lot less good for longer duration growth sectors like tech. So I don't think it's about losing faith in what tech can achieve. I think it's a function of the market where when you have uh, above average GDP growth, value cyclical stocks tend to, to do better. Okay, yeah, makes sense. And um, I, th- I think we can briefly cover this one, but it might seem counterintuitive intuitive to some that some of these businesses, big tech businesses, uh, 90% of the S&P 500, for example, uh, have seen 46% year over year EPS growth. So from a business perspective, they're performing well, but share prices, at least since this time last month, are down, essentially, particularly for the S&P 500 companies. So is it a case of, I guess you've got the the uh, secular more trends that you've just mentioned there, but is there also a case of the superior business performance having already been priced in and largely over the next six months, for example, the short term, we're, we're going to see that trend continue downwards. So I, I think uh, that that's the case, that the, the response to an exceptionally good earnings season was really overall muted. When mm-hmm. earnings beat expectations, there was hardly a, an increase in share prices, but uh, when companies missed, share prices corrected quite quite heavily. So that indeed would suggest to us that a lot of the good news had already been discounted uh, in in prices. And when you look at valuation levels, the U.S. market on twenty two times, you know, valuation levels are are high. So again, mm. yes, a lot of good news discounted. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, that makes sense. And you called it out at the start of the podcast. How much does the fear of rising inflation play a part here? Do you think? So that's also a very big, uh, a very big factor. Certainly, um, inflation fears, uh, inflation of tapering happening a little bit earlier, and also, you know, the resurgence of of COVID. Uh, it's something that wasn't there necessarily a month ago, but uh, in some countries, but emerging markets in particular in India, um, and whether that variant is coming o- over to other countries, that's another worry of the of the market. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And if we just uh, focus on business performance rather than share price performance, a lot of people are talking about Biden's proposed capital gains tax, um, which is likely, I suppose, to play a big part, perhaps even in stymieing EPS growth into 2022. Do you have a Do you have a take on that? What's What's your thoughts there? Uh, so, for the uh, the Biden tax proposals, for us, it's really this corporate taxes uh, that would impact that would reduce EPS. So we don't know exactly by how much taxes mm. will go up, uh, yeah. whether it will be uh, up to 28% as is proposed or just 25%. So the impact on uh, EPS growth can be uh, between you know, 6% or 12%, so reducing earnings by, by that amount. To us, it will probably be mid-single-digit reduction in, in earnings uh, for 2022. So that's the first year of implementation. But we think that equity, the equity market can absorb uh, that corporate tax hike without any major disruptions, um, though, of course, it could be some rotation, some consolidation. 
And the reason why we're not overly worried about it um, is because taxes are being raised in the early stages of a strong recovery. So economic momentum and margin expansion should be able to offset at least partially the negative impact from higher taxes. Yeah, interesting. So over the medium term, then you don't see this being a huge sort of significant factor in uh, EPS performance over the next, I don't know, two, three, four years even. No, I think it will be it will be a hit um, in in the first year, but after that, uh, it will normalize. And you know, the US will not be alone in raising taxes. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, you mentioned GDP as well. So it'll be it'll be interesting to sort of take a, a top down look, an economic look at this as well. So uh, we've got GDP growth in the US predicted at seven percent for this year, five percent then in twenty twenty two. So. Firstly, how do you expect that trend to continue? Uh, do, do you think we'll continue to slow down in terms of GDP growth or upward momentum might accelerate in 2023 and beyond? What's your take there? So uh, we're going to have a, a strong rebound this year, slightly less strong next year, but things will normalize. You know, there'll be, you know, in 18 months' time, there'll be a lot less catching up to do. So we expect uh, to revert to uh, average growth by 2023. So look closer to uh, to 3% growth in the US. And certainly if you look at what might happen in the UK, the Bank of England came up with expectations, strong growth this year, uh, very strong growth this year, strong growth next year, but by 2023, 1.5% growth. So this is the, you know, the, after a, a recession, you... You bounce back and then mm-hmm. eventually, you know, the early gains uh, in terms of economic growth fade. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's the context for US markets then. So can you talk to us at all about RBC's exposure to US equities? What does all of that mean for your exposure to US markets? Are you over, underweight? What can you tell us there? So we have a modest overweight in US equities. Uh, we, um, uh, we like the earnings profile, uh, the growth. Uh, that we are going to get valuations a little bit pricey, but we still think that there's you know more attractive opportunities in U.S. equities than say in the in the bond market. Uh, so we are overweight, and we would have a, a value bias again. Going back to that rough rule of thumb of uh, when you have GDP growth which is above average, uh, these value stocks, cyclical stocks, tend to do better than growth stocks. Yeah, great. I was going to ask you about your investment preference within the US. So a value bias, that's that's good to call out. Okay, well, I think that, that nicely sums up your, your investment outlook for the US market. So let's move on to the Europe, uh, to Europe and UK. I think we can focus on the continent and, and perhaps sort of take a sideways glance at the UK as well at the same time. Uh, I read a recent report uh, in which fund selectors were, were surveyed that showed a sharp drop in appetite for European equities this quarter. After having been firmly in the green since October 2019, there was a sudden fall in demand in April earlier this year. So are you as bearish on European equities right now? Not at all. In fact, we, we just upgraded European equities <laughs> overweight. I think a, a lot of people became a lot more cautious when Europe had to go back into lockdown. Uh, so many people read that that would be you know, a huge hit to the economy. And of course, with the constant news flow that it was late in the vaccine rollout and, and, and the like. So in fact, if you look at things today, um, there is good resilience in the economy. The P 
PMIs, both in terms of services and in terms of manufacturing, have bounced back very strongly from their lows. Uh, and of course, we had a hint of that because the mobility data uh, through early spring, already in February, in, um, in March, was, was showing a good resilience of the economy. And in addition to that, you have the vaccine rollout, which has really accelerated. So if you look at the what one indicator we look at is the two-week rolling um, doses per 100 people. And those numbers in Germany, Spain, and Italy uh, are higher than they are in the US and the UK. So for instance, Germany, 11.6 people per 100 uh, have been vaccinated uh, in, in the UK. It's, it's about nine. So again, a huge acceleration in the vaccine rollout. Economic indicators are really encouraging. Um, Earnings were strong and certainly stronger than what the macro uh, situation would have led one to, to believe. Um, and um, we know that European equities tend to do well uh, when the global economy picks up. So if we go back to our template that we talked about earlier on, fundamentals are improving. Valuations, if we look at the, um, the discount of European uh, equities to U.S. equities on a sector-adjusted basis, uh, then that discount is a little bit too steep in our view. And sentiment, the figures you you gave me are really backwards looking. And we think the sentiment is is turning uh, and the money that has left the region is is likely to come back. Uh, mm-hmm. And so with, you know, uh, rating strongly on these three factors, then we feel comfortable with an overweight in European equities. Yeah, interesting. And and being from the UK, I suppose uh, I, w- I want to take a, a brief look uh, at UK equities as well. Are you similarly as bullish on UK equities over the medium term or not? Uh, so we're slightly less bullish uh, on uh, the UK. We have a, um, a market weight on UK equities. The mm-hmm. main attraction of UK uh, is how cheap equities are. Uh, having said that, there are a couple of um, uh, wrinkles in in the outlook, uh, one being still the relationship within the EU and the UK. Brexit is really affecting certain sectors badly, uh, in particular the agricultural sector uh, and uh, higher tensions between uh, EU and and the UK will make um, helping these sectors a a lot more difficult uh, and it could lead the EU also to take a very tough stance in terms of giving the UK equivalents, uh, i.e. the ability of the UK to sell its financial services to, to the EU. So that's, that's one thing which is a, a worry. Scottish independence, perhaps on the back burner for now, but that will come back to the fore. You know, it will be a story for, for next year. Um, and finally, the fact that uh, the Chancellor uh, wants to um, already rebalance the books um, could be a, a concern. So already personal allowances are frozen. Uh, but higher corporate taxes coming in 2023, um, that will be, you know, a- another difficulty for the business sector. So there's some wrinkles. They're not in the short term, uh, other than the EU relationship with the EU. But while we think there's still opportunities in, in the UK, we think they are uh, better opportunities elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I think Morgan Stanley, at least at a country level, were 
relatively bullish on the UK, perhaps more so than, than, than yourself, but for the same reason, you know, you called out the, the relatively low valuations or extremely low valuations, and that's their reason for, uh, for being bullish as well. So that's interesting to know. Um, and then I guess to, to finish this, this section on uh, European and UK equities, can you talk to us about uh, RBC's current exposure to European equities? Are you over or underweight? Um, so we are, uh, as I mentioned, uh, overweight in terms of the, the geographies which will benefit the most from the reopening. Italy, yeah. Spain, uh, these are uh, countries which are very geared towards tourism, towards services. Uh, mm-hmm. So they'll benefit from the reopening. And also they are the main beneficiaries at the moment of the EU uh, Recovery Fund, which is a very important landmark for, for Europe. Uh, but in terms of our positioning, we continue to favor consumer discretionary, industrial and materials. Um, these are sectors which we believe are well positioned to benefit from an improving global economy, but also from long-term secular trends. Remember that Europe is really a global leader in industries which are geared towards the green economy. So a leader in industries ranging from renewable operators to green transportation to electrification, to industrial automation. Um, so it's a very rich hunting ground When if you're a stock picker. Uh, <laughs> we also like uh, European financial sector, so they remain very attractively valued and we see some positive consensus earnings revisions. So a, a lot to choose from in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the EU recovery fund there. I mean, the, the, the sort of public response, I suppose, has been relatively... Flat. I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on, on kind of whether the, the sentiment around that fund is likely to change over the short to medium term, or are you already seeing it change perhaps? So look, it's a, as I mentioned, it's a very, very important landmark in the development of the EU. Um, and uh, so between that and the expansion of the ECB balance sheet, it really means that the, the pace of mutualization of European debt, the, the pace of sharing European debt among all members, that is really advancing. And this uh, has been a key problem for investors uh, who are looking to invest in the Eurozone. They were very worried uh, that uh, without a common fiscal policy or without a banking union, uh, then the single currency policy really required a a sharing of the debt. And so, and and that is what is happening. So, I mean, these are very difficult issues. Uh, You say there's been a flat public response. I'm not sure which public you you refer to, uh, but certainly it's it's a very important uh, achievement. Uh, And uh, as as you know, uh, Europe has, European equities have done really quite well uh, since uh, the recovery fund has been put in place. uh, and, And that is one of the reasons. Yeah, they absolutely have. I think I read that they were the uh, best performing region across global equities in dollar terms since it was announced uh, in last May. And I guess in terms of the the public response, it's probably a bias sort of UK media point that I'm making there. Um, obviously, you, the, uh, the the UK media have their own uh, motivations for making that seem a relatively flat announcement. So um, yeah, very interesting on European equities. Um, and let's finish. I mean, you talked about your sort of value growth bias in relation to U.S. stocks. What's what's your bias here? So it's our our bias of value over growth does not change by by region. For us, yeah. it's uh, a global phenomenon. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Well, let's finish then um, before we move on to our quick fire question round by focusing on emerging markets. Um, 
Brazil, India and Mexico are among five countries hardest hit by the pandemic sorry, so far. So there isn't much sign of the limited vaccine rollout being, being rolled out in those countries or the wider battle against the pandemic even affecting emerging market equity markets at the moment, at least. The MSCI EM stocks index is up around 47% over the past year, for example, similar to both global and US stock indices. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I think it's because of the makeup of the MSCI um, Emerging Market uh, Index. When, when you look at the index, remember that China is almost 40% mm. of the in China, one country. Yeah, that is what moves your index. India is about 10% of the index. Brazil, less than five. Mexico is even smaller. Uh, so much as it pains me as a former Latin American analyst, <laughs> you know, Brazil and Mexico just do not, do not move that index. What moves the index is China. And if you yeah. think of China, they responded to the pandemic very quickly. They, um, they were able to reopen uh, and to have a, a bounce in their economy a, a lot earlier than, than we did. It was under control. So it's really, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, uh, situation with, which has driven the the emerging uh, market index. Yeah, absolutely. And I read that um, investors have, have gradually moved uh, around $14.2 billion uh, just in April back into emerging markets, having pulled out around $83 billion from EM equity and bond markets at March 2020's peak. So, uh, you talk about China there, that makes a lot of sense, the, the, the positive story there, and that might be one reason for moving uh, capital back into these markets. Are there any other reasons you'd like to highlight that, that are inciting this positive sentiment we're seeing for EM markets at the moment? Yeah, so the, the flows into emerging markets, they really started to grow um, last year in, in Q4. Uh, that's when, you know, they really started to increase in a you know quite a substantial way, mm. and one destination is bonds uh, flows into uh, into China, and that's because Chinese government bonds uh, are going to be included in the FTSE World Government Bond Index uh, as the at the end of this year in in October, um, and that that reflects China's progress with market reforms and increased access to to global investors, um, but for investors on only a very, very small allocation of Chinese government bonds, uh, the estimates I've seen is like 3% against a benchmark weighting that could potentially rise to as high as, as 15%. So it's, you know, it's reasonable to expect that there is you know, stronger than normal institutional buying of Chinese government debt um, in, in the months leading to the index inclusion. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I, I kind of read and picked up, I suppose, on a, a desensitization to what's going on, uh, kind of the epicenter of, of this pandemic, which is, as I say, in Brazil, India and Mexico. It felt like markets were a little bit desensitized to that because of the promise of the vaccine rollout and, and kind of how well other countries are doing at kind of overcoming this global pandemic. And I guess the expectation is that these these EM countries will follow suit. But does that belie some of the infrastructural sort of difficulties that some of these countries will have in achieving such significant rollout, for example? Like, have you got any thoughts on, on, on how that might develop and how maybe that isn't being properly priced in, perhaps? 
Um, so, uh, you know, again, if you look at index level, it's about China. Uh, and, and sadly, uh, you know, the, the terrible situation in India, in, in mm. Brazil, in Argentina, it's, they're not driving financial markets. It's, things are going to be very difficult for these countries for, you know, many months to, to come. So for us, our exposure uh, in emerging markets is really uh, mostly in, in China. Uh, we're still positive. We have a, an overweight position in China. We're perhaps a little bit less enthusiastic than, than before because, you know, the country uh, where growth is starting to slow a bit, uh, the debt burden is very high and is making headlines. And then you have all these investigations in, into um, technology company CEOs. So it, it all makes for a slightly more complex investment picture. Uh, and then you add the fact that valuations are not as cheap as, as they've been. Um, so uh, while we're still positive, a little bit, a little bit uh, less so. Yeah. Okay. And to finish this emerging market section, then uh, how about on a on a sector level? Where are you most bullish within emerging markets at the moment? Uh, so uh, look, um, sectors such as uh, well in China, the big uh, opportunity for us, particularly in China, is what we call suspect. So uh, sustainability through technology, and I've, I've mentioned those uh, those before. Um, and uh, China uh, has some you know, very interesting secular growth trends, many of which are only now coming to the the Western world. And so that's where we would see our our opportunities. Yeah, interesting. That's not actually a term I'd heard before. You know, are there are there because we're we're speaking largely to a retail market on this podcast. I just wonder whether there are any. Funds or ETFs that give specific exposure, sorry, to that to that trend. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, so there are some um, some indices, some MSCI indices, uh, which um, replicate sort of alternative energy industries. Uh, but may I suggest that you get in touch with RBC Wealth Management, uh, and we can take you through through all of, of these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, great. Nice little bit of uh, advice for the listeners there. So let's let's finish by uh, focusing on our quick fire question round. So this is a more sort of generic list of questions we ask to all guests, whether they're fund managers, uh, personal or private traders, or even authors of famous financial books. Even so, they should relate to everyone that we speak to. And I guess it's just a light-hearted way to end the episode. So feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. The first question, in your opinion, what is the top mistake investors make? So the top mistake that I have seen investors make is that they hold on to bad investments for too long. Yes, absolutely. That's one we've heard on here before. So yeah, really solid advice. Um, Question two, then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers, for example? So, look, I think it's very important to read a very broad array of publications. It's important to hear diverse views, even if you don't agree. Um, But the one thing I like to do, I like to go uh, on Twitter, and there are a lot of very good analysts there. Um, who may not, you know, be with a big brokerage house, and you might not hear about them, but they have, you know, they make very good analysis um, and uh, share their thoughts. Many are retired or semi-retired, lots of experience, um, economists, university professors, strategists, full of wisdom, uh, and without a product to push. So I, I think there's a there's a very good uh, source of information there and thought leadership there. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess they're able to sort of remain objective, uh, given they know right, that yeah. they don't have the allegiance to a particular product or company. Are there any that uh, stick in your mind um, that we could point listeners to, perhaps? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to give um, to give to give names, but you know, you find one, and and a good one will uh, himself or herself follow other good people, and so you end mm-hmm. up having a good thread of uh, again good thought leadership. Yeah. Okay, great. So question three then, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date, do you think? So that, that's a difficult one. And I think the bias is that one you know, thinks automatically of what happened in the last 10 years. But if I, if I go back to uh, my experience in Latin America in the early 1990s, I mean, those were you know, really extraordinary moments. You would hop on a regional flight, you know, a 10-seater, and you would go to Chihuahua, to meet the management of a you know ceramic tiles you know company, mm-hmm. um, and you would go to Medellin and meet management of a of a regional uh, retail chain, um, and and be in the country that had inspired Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I mean, it's just you know for somebody in their mid twenties that was just absolutely extraordinary. Um, if I think. Uh, more mainstream in terms of the you know the last ten years, you know, I've had very very good career progression at RBC for which I'm very grateful, uh, and you know being made a managing director. I mean that that was a, a big achievement. There are very few women in the financial industry who uh, make it to that stage. Uh, and, and I feel, you know, very honoured to uh, to be able to be there. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about asking sort of about female representation within the financial industry. I wonder whether it's a good point to quickly pick it up here. You know, because I mean, it it, it goes without saying almost that they are underrepresented, particularly uh, at the top level of big financial institutions. Do you see that changing at all? Are you, are you I guess, optimistic about the future in that respect? Look, I see a lot more efforts being made. Um, and you know, unfortunately, it takes a very long time for for uh, the progression to be to be seen. But um, certainly, I see a lot more efforts being made in terms of not only um, hiring uh, young women, uh, but also trying to retain them in the job market, uh, particularly after they have had children. That's when really the majority drop out. Uh, it's mm. a very grueling schedule to have both you know a young family and a, and a full-time job and, and and I see a lot of efforts being made so I, I am hopeful uh, I'm also frustrated because it's taking a very long time yeah no absolutely and, and there's probably a, a whole other podcast episode in that but I completely take your point <laughs> I can imagine it's extremely frustrating um so thank you for that sorry I deviated from our quickfire question round there so question four our penultimate question a top tip for your younger self, if you could go back in time and give yourself a tip, what would it be? Assuming I, w- I would have listened to my younger self, uh, <laughs> or my older self, rather to my older self. Look, mm. I would say enjoy the trip and don't worry too much about the exact final destination. Yeah, okay, absolutely. So our last question, and I suppose this is the opto question, we aim to speak to the investors that are outperforming uh, typical benchmark and uh, returns, I suppose, um, and we like to ask them where they think people are best served to derive alpha. So, in your opinion, what is an investor's best source of alpha? If you had to narrow it down to one thing, I think you have to be consistent. Yeah, a lot of consistency, a lot of logic, and apply that reasoning all the time. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we had someone on the podcast a while back, actually, he was just a private investor, but he talked about almost becoming an algo yourself uh, to to make your process almost machine-like. So the thinking is done before you're in the trade or before you're in the investment um, to take, I suppose, some of the subjectivity and the emotion out of actually trading on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I think that speaks to that point. I think that's a really interesting insight to to finish on. So thank you very much. Uh, Frederic, for giving up your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.